Okay, so church, today we're going to finish the book of Nahum. The little three-chapter book of Nahum, tucked away in the Old Testament. So I'll just begin today by reading the chapter. Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than no Amon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with, which, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men bound with, were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your, of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the seeds. Strength, strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your, guards, your guardsmen are like a swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers. Settling in the stone walls on a cold day, the sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. And there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne today and we just approach you with fear and trembling, Lord, but with love and adoration for saving us. Lord, you are a holy God, but you are also a merciful God. So we thank you for making the way accessible to the Holy of Holies so we can come into Your presence, Father. And so we come to You right now. I just ask that You would give me clarity as I speak to Your people today, Lord, and by Your Holy Spirit, God, that You would make 
the application to each one of our hearts, Lord, and that you would use this this word of yours and this time that we're going to spend together, Lord, to strengthen your people, to edify them, Lord, and uh, that you accomplish your purpose today, and that Christ and he alone will be glorified today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so when God's patience runs out, that is really what we're seeing today in the text. And so we don't want to presume upon the grace of God um, as the people of God. That, that would not be a wise thing to do for anybody. Be- because we've seen that God is patient. We, we saw that God was patient in Jonah, right? That was really one of the, the main themes of the book, that He was patient and merciful and that He, he relented. He did not judge uh, Nineveh through the preaching of Jonah. God had compassion on Nineveh. And Nahum even talks about it in chapter 1. He talks about that he's avenging, he's wrathful, that, he, that, he's, that he's angry, but, but that he's slow to anger. In other words, he's going to be, he's patient with men. He's patient with Nathan, nations before he pours out his, his judgment. But we don't want to presume upon the grace of God. In, in Genesis 6, we remember we read, that, we read Genesis 7 earlier, but in Genesis 6, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, as Noah preached to those around him for 120 years. Let's put that in perspective, guys. You know, I'm I'm one of the oldest guys in here. And, you know, just just look at your age. Think about 120 years that, that Noah preached with really no results other than his family. They were the only ones that God rescued. God was very patient in Noah's day. In 2 Peter 3, that we're familiar with, that we've read recently, He's patient right now, right? Not willing that any should perish. He's not slow, as some count slowness. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, we can... We don't know when Christ is coming back. Don't ever listen to anybody tell you that sets a date. But we do know from that text that one reason He hasn't come back is because God is patient. Waiting on sinners to repent. That much we do know. You can tell somebody Christ has not come back because God is patient. And He's waiting on you to repent. Now is the time of grace. So the end will be like the days of Noah. In one sense, God is patient like He was in the days of Noah. But in the other sense, His patience will run out. We see the pattern in the Old Testament as we're going to see today. There is a time when God's patience runs out. The Lord has been very patient with Nineveh. Very, very patient with Nineveh. He granted repentance to Nineveh through Jonah's preaching. He's been very, very patient with Jonah. This is, this is fast forward 100, 100 to 150 years later. He's been very patient with Nineveh. But as we'll see, as we've been looking at the last few weeks, they have fallen back into their wickedness several generations later. And God's patience has run out with Nineveh, as we will see today. So if you have your bulletin on the back, you can follow along. We're going to look at five things today. The theme... The theme of the message is this, very simple. 
that the Lord's patience towards Nineveh has, has run out. And she now receives His justice. In the book of Jonah, Nineveh received God's mercy and compassion. And as we're going to see today, that Nineveh, Assyria receives the justice of God. And so we're going to look at five things today. First of all, we're going to see the sin of Nineveh. Okay? Because the text is 19 verses, you know, guys, I usually read the text and I'll go, go back through it line by line. I'm not going to do that. It'll be more like section by section. I may read a particular verse here and there, but we're going to, we're going to move through it rather quickly today because it's a larger section. But in the, in the first thing we're going to look at, the sin of Nineveh, and it, it, you see it in verse 1 and verse 4. Verse 1 and verse 4. Woe to the bloody city. I want you to listen to this. This is, this is the boasting. Okay, I'm going to try to pronounce these kings. I have a hard time pronouncing their names. This was the king of Assyria in the year 885 to 860 B.C., which was about 200 years before. His name was Asher Nasperal, something like that, the second. Okay, but this is what he said. This is, this is recorded. This, is, this was on a monument, okay, commemorating the first 18 years of his reign. And this is what he himself declared. A great number of them in the land of Kiri I slew. 260 of their fighting men I cut down with a sword. I cut off their heads and I formed them into pillars. Bubo, son of Buba, I flayed in the city of Arbella and I spread his skin upon the city wall. I flayed all of the chief men in the city of Saru who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up with the pillar some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, and I spread their skins upon the walls. And I cut off the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. He goes on, he talks more about killing hundreds with the sword in the city of Hulei burning 3,000 captives with fire, others cutting off their hands and their fingers and gouging out their eyes. And we read about last week they would cut their lips off. So, so in verse 1 to say that this is a bloody city is somewhat of an understatement. That is what Nineveh was like. And why we're going to see God's patience run out with this bloodthirsty city. This this is a judgment oracle. It says, whoa, this is a judgment oracle on Nineveh. And we discussed last week in chapter 2 how they would, there, there, there's much plundering by the Babylonians as they come in and they accumulated all of this stuff, animals, gold, silver, furniture, all kinds of riches and material possessions. And the way they, the way they acquired it was through plundering other nations. And so we talked about that because it mentions that in verse 1, full of lies and full of pillage or plundering. And so in verse 4, in verse 4 we see, we see language of harlotries, of the harlot, mistress of sorceries. 
Archaeology confirms that, that, that they're much practice in witchcraft in, in the city of Nineveh. They would seduce people. That's the language here of a harlot or a mistress. Nineveh was known, Assyria was known for, for seducing people like a harlot or a mistress. Why? Because verse 1, they were full of lies. They were liars. What do we see? They're liars and they're murderers. Like Jesus says in John chapter 8, like their father the devil who is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. They're following in the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. They're following in their father's footsteps. Full of lies. Here's an example. Uh, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. 2 Kings. Two verses in 2 Kings. We actually looked at this last week, but we're looking at it really from a little bit different angle. Uh, 2 Kings 18.31-32. You can see this. How they're... they're, they're uh, you can see their seduction in their lives. In, in 2 Kings 18.31-32. This was the messenger that we looked at last week. Rabshakeh the messenger of the king of Assyria when he came into to Judah. And he says this, listen to, the, listen to the seduction of this. I just read to you how they would treat those that they, that they took captive. And listen to what he says. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree. And drink each of the waters of his own sister until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Come with me and I'll take care of you until I decide to flay you and put your skins up on the wall. So they were, they were liars, they were murderers, they were liars. This was a bloodthirsty city. So we, we know this is the sin of Nineveh. This is why God is coming in judgment. Because they did this to all the nations surrounding them, and in particular to God's people, the nation of Judah. Secondly, we see the invasion of Nineveh in verses 2 and 3. We discussed this in chapter 2. Really, chapter 3 is a repeat of chapter 2. Really just describing in detail when the Babylonians and the Medes and whoever else may have been with them, Scythians, I can't remember some of the different groups, but primarily the Babylonians. When they came in, chapters 2 and 3 describes this invasion. And so we see more of it in, in verse 2 and 3. The, the noise of the whip, the, the noise of the rattling wheel, galloping horses, bounding chariots. What do we see here? This arrogant city who had been known to strike fear and so many are now being struck with fear. That's what's going on. They could probably hear the Babylonian armies. Remember we talked about them last week. These massive armies dressed in scarlet coming forward. And they could, they, I'm sure they could hear them coming from quite a distance. Remember what we discussed in chapter 2, guys. Nahum, oh, and, and, and chapter 1. The name Nahum means comforter. That's what his name means. So Nineveh would not have been comforted, but who would have been comforted? When they, when they heard the, these words read, God's people, Judah would have heard and been, and been comforted that their enemy, this violent oppressor, that God was given in detail 
how He was going to destroy this wicked nation. John Calvin says this. He, uh, I read something similar last week and he, and he says uh, something very similar to make this point once again. He said all these things, this, this description here, were for the purpose of fully convincing the Israelites that Nineveh, however much it was supplied with wealth and power, was yet approaching its ruin, for its enemies would prevail against it. And so that was, um, again, I've, I've said that throughout this, that's, it's the same principle with the book of Revelation. When it was written to the people it was written to, and for God's people down through church history, who happened to fall under severe persecution, that book, more than any other, is written to comfort God's people. Because that is a reality. Many people, many of our brothers and sisters, down through church history and even now, are suffering at the hands of very, very powerful and very, very evil governmental systems. And so the, the, the words are meant to encourage. This is what's going to happen. This is what the Lord's going to do. And it helps give you an eternal perspective that this life is a vapor. It's a mist. It says when we come to Christ that we, are, we have been appointed to believe in Him and to suffer. And, and by God's appointment, by God's providence, He allows some of His children to suffer more than others. But in the end, guys, Paul said this present suffering in Romans chapter 8. You remember, remember how he suffered? I'm not going to go back and read it. 2 Corinthians 11 or 12, he talks about all the sufferings, his imprisonments, his beatings, his starvation, his sleepless nights, his persecutions, all of it. And he says these sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that we are going to experience. So we've got to keep that in mind. So the invasion of Nineveh. That's what we saw secondly. Thirdly, we see the humiliation of Nineveh in verses 5-7. through seven. The humiliation of Nineveh. What, what does God's Word say, guys? Right? Those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. God's always going to turn the tables. And that's what He's doing here with this city, with this nation, with this, this kingdom here. The Lord... It's, it's important to remember that the Lord will do these things. The Lord is the one who is Nineveh's real enemy. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts in verse 5. You see, there is one thing for a sinner, for a proud sinner to say, to boast and say, basically, I'm against God. I don't want God. I'm against God. We heard a lot of that yesterday. That's one thing. It's a totally, it's a totally separate thing when God of heaven says, I'm against you. And that's what's going on here in this text. We, and we talked about that last week. That's the most frightening thing you can hear is that the Lord is against you. I guess there's one thing more frightening and that's depart from me because that means it's over. Because the Lord is against all of those who are not in Christ. But as long as you have air in your lungs and your heart is beating and you can hear the sound of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is hope for the biggest enemy of Christ while you're still alive. There's hope to be reconciled to Him by faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. So all of this language, all of this, verses 5-7, through seven, guys, again, you can just kind of look at that section. It's, it's all 
language of humiliation. The Lord through Babylon is humiliating Nineveh. Nineveh, the one who had been so cruel to others. I just read you. That went on for hundreds of years. They said all of the kings would boast about these things. And this proud, arrogant king and proud, arrogant people were going to be publicly disgraced for all the nations to see. And it says in verse 7, Where or, or who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? What's to grieve? Right? With such a wicked, vile, violent, murderous place being judged. What's to grieve? Who, who would want to comfort? That's, that's the language of, of Nahum here. This whole, as we go throughout this chapter, the prophet is mocking Nineveh. And we'll see it even more clearly. He's mocking Nineveh. Who's going to grieve for you? There's not going to be any comforters. The horrific consequence of God setting Himself against an individual or against a people. That's what we're seeing here. When God is against one and God sets His will to be against somebody, there are horrific consequences. Listen to Malachi 3.2. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? Let's look at that just real briefly. Do, do a little, just a little, a little timeline through the Bible here. Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? Did the people in Noah's day stand? No, they did not. God's patience ran out. Did the people in Sodom and Gomorrah stand? No, they did not. He flooded the one and He fried to a crisp the other. He has different ways of bringing judgment. Did the Egyptians stand at the Exodus? No, they were drowned. The ones who weren't killed in the other, in the other plagues. Did Goliath and the Philistines? No. God raised up a servant and struck him down and threw David many other, many other Philistines. Of course, there's many, many more. How about the nation of Israel in 70 A.D. who rejected the Messiah? Did they stand? No. Millions were killed as God judged Israel and brought down that idolatrous temple. How about Lucifer and his angels who rebelled way at the beginning? They didn't stand. They've been cast out and they have an eternal lake of fire that's prepared specifically for the devil and his angels. Who can endure the day of His coming? The answer is, obviously, nobody apart, praise God, from finding refuge in Jesus Christ. And all of those who find refuge in Christ will stand because right, Christ endured that wrath on the cross. Revelation 6, 15 and 17. Here's another look at the very end. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? John asked the same question that Micah asked. So God is slow to anger, beloved. We, again, we are all living testimonies of that, are we not? The fact, number one, that we're still alive, that God didn't kill us the first time we sinned because He would do that which is just, the soul who sins shall die. And even more so, that He redeemed us, that He saved us by His grace alone, through faith alone in His Son, Jesus Christ alone. God is slow to anger. He is patient with sinners. I don't know how many times we, we, we tried to communicate that yesterday to similar language. That Christ can save you. Christ can redeem you. No matter what type of lifestyle you live. But His patience does run out. And no one, to answer the question, no one will be able to stand when He decides to come in judgment. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that Christ offers us? The answer is we will not. We will not escape. So the humiliation of Nineveh, Nineveh is going to be completely humiliated and destroyed. Fourthly, we see the fall. If you look at your outline, the fall of Thebes. If you'll notice in the new NAS, I read it's the no Amon. It's, it's pronounced not Amon and Nineveh. So, that the, so Thebes was the capital city of southern Egypt that was conquered by Assyria in 663 B.C. The, 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 the Na, Amon, it's pronounced Na. It's the city of the god Amon. Jeremiah 46 talks about this where Amon is spoken of as the god of Na. Okay? But it's most, mostly referred to Thebes. That was the city. So, fourthly, we're going to see the fall of Thebes and Nineveh. Because Nahum connects the two here. And we'll see what his, the point is. He's trying to make. First of all, he says in verse in verse eight, "Are you better than Thebes? Are you better than?" Now the question he's not asking, "Are you morally better?" But are you are you more prepared than Thebes was? Are you better off than Thebes was? As we're going to see, Thebes was a powerful, powerful city. And so, what's significant about Nahum mentioning this city? Well, again, they were destroyed, or they, they, were, they were a city much like Nineveh that at that time seemed invincible. The city of Thebes, it seemed invincible. And so in verse 8, they were surrounded by the Nile River, okay? Which when it flooded, it's reported that it could be over two miles wide near the city of Thebes. Uh, and along with the river had many channels and many canals. And so the point is, is this would have provided a great defense against invading armies. And see, Assyria, the king, would know this firsthand. The same king that's reigning now was reigning when Assyria invaded Thebes. It's the same king. So he would have known what a formidable opponent Thebes was. And the point is, God destroyed them through Assyria, ironically. And so in verse 8, Thebes had great wealth, political prominence, and they were surrounded by these different, these different countries who were their allies 
who would have provided even more military assistance. Are you better off than Thebes? Verse 10, And they were taken captive by Assyria. Again, led by the same king who is king currently, Asher Benapal, or however you pronounce it, but that's who it was. So they knew what a formidable opponent that thieves were to overthrow. So what's the point here? Very, very simple, guys. Very simple. Nahum is telling Nineveh, reminding Nineveh how, 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 how well off thieves were. How difficult it would have been for, a, for an evading army to defeat them, but yet they did. Assyria themselves judged this country, this city, and took many captive, and Nahum's gone, and the same's going to be true for you. You're not any better off than them. And that's what he's referring to in verse 11. You too, you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You will search for a refuge from the enemy. In verse 11, Thebes fell, and you should expect the same. Oh, it's a warning. Judgment's coming. Don't think you're too strong for Yahweh. Your armies, to no avail, they will not help you. Your walls will not help you. You too will be drunk on the cup of God's wrath. You will be made weak. You will be like a bully. You ever seen a bully on a playground? And somebody stands up to them and they, 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 they hide in fear. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I've always enjoyed that. Seeing bullies put their place... But you're going to be like a bully now cowering in fear. And then, and then verses, uh, I think I'm, verse, yeah, still in verse 11. You will be hidden. You will search for a refuge from the enemy. There was a remnant, okay? Historical fact that there was a remnant band of Assyrians who fled westward and settled at Haran. I, I don't know. I didn't look it up. Probably the same area that Abraham was from. But they were eventually destroyed by Babylon after just a few years. They sought refuge, right? They sought refuge. But it's pointless to take refuge in anybody else except the Son, as Psalm 2 tells us. He's the only safe refuge. Taking refuge in a nation, taking refuge in a false religion will not help you against God's wrath. We're, we're commanded to take refuge in the Son to avoid the wrath of God. And then in verse 12, just like ripe fruit falls easily, picture that, right? He's given us illustrations. Just like ripe fruit falls easily with the shaking of a tree, it's going to be that easy for the invading army to conquer Nineveh. He's just saying, this is going to be easy. You're going to fall. You're going down. When Babylon comes, it's going to be an easy victory. Because they are a servant of Yahweh, unknowingly. Verse 13, the gates will be left without defense as they're overtaken. And Nahum is mocking the once powerful army and comparing them to women. That's what's going on. I didn't, really, I didn't write it down, but I, uh, I believe it was James Montgomery Voice. He had some uh, good information on that the, uh, the, the armies of Nineveh were well known to be many, many, many homosexuals. 
And so that, that could have been that, just a, a lot of a, a, a effeminate type stuff going on. But either way, the, the, the prophet is mocking them. Mocking their, their defense. You're like women. It's not a derogatory. That, that wouldn't be politically correct nowadays. It's not derogatory. No. We know that from Scripture, God did not design women to go into battle. He designed men for that. And it's really a sign of a country under judgment when you see women being put in battle, which, again, we see that in our day. It, because what it does, it gets the gender roles all confused, which was what we were reminded of yesterday. It's, it's, it's evil and wicked to call a little boy a girl and a little girl a boy. But it's the same thing going on here. God made men to be men, to be protectors. We're to protect women. Women are not made to protect men. Men are made to protect women. And so, I think what's going on here is uh, it's just a, it's a mocking. It's a mocking going on from the prophet. And so, fifthly and lastly, we see God's justice on Nineveh. God's justice on Nineveh in verses 14 through 19. Verse 14, look at the language. Draw for yourself water for the siege. This is mocking, okay? Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into clay and tread and mortar. Take hold. In other words, you better get busy. They're coming. You better strengthen this wall. Get to work. They're coming. Oh yeah, by the way, it's going to be to no avail. We've got to remember what he says. A few times previously, one time... In particular, in chapter 1, verse 9, remember what he said? Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. So he's saying, build all you want. Work, 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 work. Get busy. It's not going to matter. You're still going to be overtaken. It's like a sinner attempting to work their way to heaven. Right? Work, work, work. i got to work. i got to be more religious. i got to do, 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 and I can avoid God's wrath. It's pointless. Good works does not appease God's wrath. Only the work of Jesus Christ appeased God's wrath on the cross. When it was turned away in full, He became our propitiation for our sins. Galatians 2.21 reminds us, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly or in vain. No, all their efforts, all their efforts of, of, of these people in Nineveh will not help against the Lord who has declared that He is against them. The only thing that would have helped is if they found refuge in the Son, like the psalmist said. Kiss the Son lest to be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It's always been that way. Take refuge in the one true God, in His mercy and in His grace. And so this, all of the efforts of the sinner in the same way will not help. Work, work, work. Build, build, build. No. The Bible says that we are at enmity with God and we must be reconciled to God, brought into a right relationship with God. No more at enmity with God. Only through faith in Christ. Amen? Knowing that we have been justified. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see in verse 15, the fire will consume you. The fire of God's judgment will consume Nineveh. 
And if we, we start seeing language of the locusts here, guys. It, sometimes it refers to Babylon. Sometimes it refers to Assyria. So in 15a, the locusts refer to Babylon. The fire of God's judgment will consume Nineveh just as easily as the swarm of locusts can devour an entire crop. Think of that. That's how easily Babylon, like a swarm of locusts, will devour, will consume Nineveh. And then in 15b, Assyria is the one illustrated by the locusts. Even if Assyria multiplies themselves like locusts, it will not matter. It will not matter. Why? Who can stand when the Lord appears? So this locust language is back and forth here. In verse 16, Nineveh had many traders, many merchants which brought in much wealth. But it was simply more for the Babylonians to plunder when they came in. The armies stripped, the armies of Babylon like locusts stripped Nineveh of everything and then flew away, leaving the city devastated and desolate. Complete, utter destruction. As he's been saying throughout this letter, this prophecy. Again, comforting words to Judah, right? Just like the book of Revelation and other places in Scripture. Comforting words to the people of God. Especially the people of God who are suffering persecution. Comforting words, but words of horror and dread to the wicked. Yeah, these are comforting words. These would have been comforted. Com- I don't know who all heard it. But it, would have, it would have been comforting words to all the nations that Assyria had plundered and devastated. But verse 17, again, it's more mocking. It's more mocking. Where are your guardsmen and your marshals? In other words, you guys remember chapter 2, the lions? The lions and the lionesses, picturing those in, those in Nineveh, the, the king and all of his servants. And they were pictured as ferocious lions, bloodthirsty lions, powerful lions. That's what he's saying here. Where are they? Where are all your guardsmen and your marshals? Where are all the powerful lions meant to protect your own people? They were numerous, it says, but now nobody knows where they're at. They fled. They're cowards. They're not loyal to you, king. They're gone. O king, verse 18. O king, so now we know, now we know he is speaking directly to the king. Sometimes it's hard to tell if he's talking to the city of Nineveh as a whole or to the king. We know he's speaking to the king. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them. There is no recovery for Nineveh. This is full and final destruction on a once powerful city for their sin. For their sin of idolatry. For their sin of dragging God's people into idolatry. For their sin of wickedness and violence and cruelty. And arrogance. You remember what Nineveh said? We read a few weeks ago in Zephaniah. Nineveh said, "There's, uh, there was, it was, it was language of Yahweh that there was no one besides me. I'm invincible," is what this wicked city said. And God is humbling them. 
This news will be met with joy from Judah and the other nations. Just like the world celebrated when a, when a man like Adolf Hitler was put to death. It brings joy to a lot of people. A lot of people, when, when somebody like that is, 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 is guilty of taking the lives of so many, there's joy when a person like that is eliminated. So that's what's going on here. This was the most powerful city of that day. For, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Now we're in verse... Uh, we're in verse 19. Oh, I'm sorry. I actually, in, in verse 18, uh, I, I did. I skipped part of verse 18 where he says, O king, where are your shepherds and your nobles? So, so the, in other words, what is a shepherd? They're supposed to be caring for the people. O king, where are they? They're supposed to be caring for the people. But who did they learn from, O king? They learned from you. And you only look out for yourself. Says some are sleeping, probably means some have died, some have scattered, they're AWOL. They're AWOL. They're AWOL. Who can endure the day of his coming? And so there is no recovery in verse 19. There is no recovery for Nineveh. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? We see right there at the very end of the book. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Jonah and Nahum, guys. Jonah and Nahum are the only two books in the 66 books of the canon that ends with a question like this. And they're the two books we just recently looked at. Both dealing with Nineveh. But think about the contrast in the two questions. What what was the last verse in Jonah 4.11? When God asked Jonah, should I, not, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Wow, what a contrast as compared to for on whom has not your evil passed continually. Time is up for you, Nineveh. Yahweh's patience has run out. Nahum is telling the king this. What do we see here, guys? In conclusion, really, to Nahum, but in, with Jonah and Nahum. Nahum is considered part two of Jonah. And so what do we see here as we wrap this up? What do we learn about our God, the same God that showed compassion to Nineveh and Jonah, and the same God that in His justice poured out His wrath upon Nineveh? Well, that's that's exactly what we see. In the book of Jonah, God demonstrated His mercy by extending compassion. He didn't have to. He could have judged Nineveh at that time and been just. But He demonstrated His mercy. That was the theme of Jonah. That God is merciful and compassionate. Here, in Nahum, God demonstrates His justice to Nineveh by coming in judgment and pouring out His wrath on them. He's a jealous God. He's an avenging God. And so we see His mercy in one. And we see His justice in another. What are we reminded of in Nahum, guys? That with God, there is no injustice. 
God was not unjust when He judged Nineveh. They got what they deserved because of their sin. Just like any sinner. God does nothing. He he is not unjust in anything that He does. There will not be one sinner in hell who is there because God is unjust. That's the point. You guys reminded of a verse in Romans 9. Two verses, Romans 9, 14 and 15. Paul says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. There is no injustice with God, is there? He says, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he will do it when he chooses. And that's what we see here with Jonah and with Nahum. We see God's attributes. He is perfect in His mercy, in His compassion. We can never question His compassion because every single one of us deserve to be dead and in hell. And if you don't agree with that, then you don't understand the depths of your own sin. We are sinners by nature. We are depraved and we deserve the judgment of God. And God would be just in condemning us. But, right? But God, in His mercy, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved. So that's what we see here. As we look at this, God is patient with nations. He is patient with nations. He was patient with Nineveh. We clearly saw it. Then Jonah and even Nahum mentioned it, that he's patient, slow to anger. And I will say as far as nations go, he is patient with our nation. He is very patient with our nation. In many ways, we already are under the judgment of God. But we could be under the full judgment of God and God would do that which is just. But He's also patient with individuals. Is He not? Has He not been patient with you? He's been patient with me. Amen? He's patient, right? Paul says in Romans 2, I'm going to read it. My mind drew a blank. Because it's... it's it's that good. Romans 2, uh, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He is a patient God and I am so grateful. I know what I deserve. But He is patient And He revealed His Son to me by His grace. And for that I am eternally grateful as I know many of you are as well. So He is patient with nations. He's patient with individuals. But again, the title of the message, His patience runs out. And that's why Scripture warns that if today, if today you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear the Gospel, if you understand the Gospel, that you're a sinner and that you deserve the wrath of God in an eternal hell, but that Christ came to save sinners, that Christ gave His life as a ransom on the cross, on the tree, and that He is your way of escape, trusting in His death, burial, and resurrection to save you. If you understand that, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. 
Come to Him. He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Maybe one of the greatest promises in the Bible is that He said, Whoever does come to Me, I will never cast out. He will never turn a sinner away that comes in repentance and faith. I can't think of a better promise. I stole this from my brother Jeff Rose that I've said many, many times over the years because I've heard him say it and I I agree with it wholeheartedly. Your family may reject you. Your friends may reject you. your, Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister may all reject you, but there's one who will not if you will come to Him. He will never leave you nor forsake you, but you must come. Take refuge in Christ who alone can save sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son, Lord. Thank You for pouring out Your your wrath on Him in the place of Your people, Lord. Father, You are merciful and yet You are just. And we praise You, God. We praise You for being the holy God that we sing about. We praise You for being... We even praise You for for being a wrathful God because, Lord, we praise You for who You are. And we praise You, Lord, for being merciful and for being patient and for being kind and putting up with sinners, Lord. Lord, as, as we see, not in, a, not in a self-righteous, judgmental way, Lord, because we are all guilty. We are all sinful and deserve Your judgment, Lord. But when we see our own city celebrating that which we know that You destroyed a city for the exact same thing in Genesis 19. Father, our heart grieves. Our heart grieves for our neighbors, Lord, who are caught in the clutches of, of, of depravity, Lord, and who are proud of it, Lord. They're proud of it. And so, Father, we just ask You, we beg You to have mercy. Lord, on the hundreds who heard the Gospel yesterday, Lord, who stood and listened, Father, we pray that You would have mercy upon them, God, that You would save many out of that crowd in Your own time of choosing, Lord. That maybe it will be today, maybe it was yesterday, maybe it will be in 20 years from now. When that seed that was planted in their hearts, Lord, will be watered and You'll cause the growth. And You'll save them, Lord. That's what we pray. That's what our desire is. Father, thank You for saving us, Lord. God, as we remember You, Lord, as we remember Your sacrifice upon the cross, and we remember Your your blood being shed for the remission of our sins, as we take the Lord's Supper today, God, we we just say thank You. We thank You and we bless You, Lord. And we just, we want this to be a continuation of our worship. Lord, we we thank You and love You. In Christ's name, Amen.